the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on social media, including Parlor at Dan Proft. Thank you for uh, joining us. It's been a challenging week. appreciate you hanging in there. President Trump uh, yesterday delivering a national address of sorts via video posted on Twitter. Now that he's back up and running on Twitter, in which he uh, again conceded the election. He actually conceded it the day before through the statement he released through a spokesman. But he uh, ensured that his focus in the remaining two weeks of his term would be on ensuring a smooth transition. A new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. My focus now turns to ensuring a smooth, orderly, and seamless transition of power. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. Healing and reconciliation. Those are those. There's a. There are those words again, I should say. I'll get back to that in a moment. Trump also uh, suggesting that uh, the Trump movement's journey is not over. We must revitalize the sacred bonds of love and loyalty that bind us together as one national family. To the citizens of our country, serving as your president has been the honor of my lifetime. And to all of my wonderful supporters, I know you are disappointed But I also want you to know that our incredible journey is only just beginning. Uh, Trump tweeting this morning, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first and make America great again, will have giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form. He also announced today he will be the first president to not attend the uh, an inauguration of the as the outgoing president for the incoming president to those uh, to all those who have asked he tweeted i will not go be going to the inauguration on january 20th and uh, on the matter of being disrespected i just wanted to fold this in before we uh, are joined by victor davis hansen this was anderson cooper talking about uh, those uh, Trump supporters who came to the Save America rally on Wednesday and uh, making no distinction between the overwhelming majority that were peaceful rally-goers and the uh, perhaps couple of hundred or fewer who uh, turned into violent mobsters. Completely against law and order, completely unconstitutional behavior. It's stunning, and they're going to go back, you know, to the Olive Garden and to their the Holiday Inn that they're staying at and the Garden Marriott, and they're going to have some drinks, and they're going to talk about the great day that they had in Washington, and they really did something and stand up for something. And- they're going to go back to the Olive Garden and the Holiday Inn and the Garden Marriott. First of all, there's nothing wrong with any of those places. Secondly, that's not what Anderson Cooper was conveying. 
he was conveying a caricature of Trump voters, Trump supporters. And uh, to Trump's uh, tweet about um, they will not be disrespected or treated unfairly, oh, they're going to continue to be disrespected. And I hope Anderson's Anderson Cooper's words reverberate around the country in the same way that deplorables did, in the same way that, that credulous boomer rubes did, because that's what they think of you. And it's not just what they, they're willing to articulate, it's what they're willing to do in furtherance of what they think about you, those who hold positions of influence in cultural and governmental institutions in this country. For more on all of this, and there is so much to discuss, we're pleased to be joined again by the great Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, as well as The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Thank you uh, for having me. Um, let's, let's start with uh, President Trump's uh, last 24 hours, the uh, video yesterday and then the tweets this morning, particularly his announcement that he would not attend the inauguration of Joe Biden. Is that a good decision? Uh, well, I think he might have said, I'm willing to go if asked but and put the onus on him. But I think he realizes it's not that he doesn't want, I don't think, I think he understands it'll just cause more turmoil and more controversy. And here we are in this, we're kind of in a hysteria now the last seven or eight days. And ironically, it's much like his first seven or eight days when remember his election caused immediate his inauguration cause you know calls to blow him up and to impeach him and i think it was rosa book said we need to have a military coup to get rid of him she wrote that important policy so he kind of ended as he came in and i think he wants to avoid that you know i can see why uh, uh, how I do you everybody realizes go ahead i'm sorry no no go ahead finish well i think everybody realizes that uh that, you know, you you have all these protesters and then you say go to the Capitol and that violence happened. So that was reckless. And I think he was contrite, but not contrite enough initially. And then that the latest one was fine. The problem we're having, though, uh, Dan, as you know, when this country gets into a, a Me Too movement or a, some kind of lift up hysteria about cages on the border, whatever it is, then we get this furor. And we had it with BLM and Antifa. And everybody comes forward to virtue signal. And now we have people in the cabinet and appointees that, you know, what what good does it do that Mike McLaney announces he's going to resign, what, 12 days earlier as special envoy to Ireland? So mm-hmm. you get all of this posturing and we don't get to the problem. And the problem is that uh, Donald Trump had a successful presidency and he appealed and we made to a news constituency, and we made the Republican Party. He was not a racist, and he was excessive at times, and he's going to pay a price for that. But they can't let that be. And so um, right now we're in this this crazy feeding frenzy, and, and I think there is going to be a good of it. There's going to be a national discussion and introspection and about what we how we term violence. And I think just as conservatives have damned Anybody who desecrated our capital, and they should be damned. I think it's also people going to look at Antifa and BLM and what Nancy Pelosi has said about, you know, protest during the border thing. She said, I hope there's, up- I expect uprisings all over the country. And people have been very reckless, and they have condoned or contextualized violence. 
And I think most conservatives didn't contextualize the violence in the Capitol. They banned it unequivocally. And I wish the left had done that uh, too. The weird thing is that if you contextualize violence because ideology excuses it, then the left would probably say about the Capitol, well, these people had legitimate grievances, so we have to exempt them from consequences. But of course, they didn't do that. Uh, they weren't even consistent in their hypocrisy. And so with we went, and one day we <laughs> they weren't consistently hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, defund the police one day and the next day, where's the police when we need them? Right. Uh, uh, so, what, 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 with respect to uh, instances of virtue signaling, would you categorize the uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Republican congressman from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger's call for? Uh, resignation or impeachment or some 25th Amendment action because the captain of the ship of state is Quig, according to Kinzinger, and uh, he needs to be he needs to be removed one way or the other. Yeah, I wish Kinzinger had really read Herman Wouk. Um, I met him once, uh, the author of the Cain Mutiny, and he and I asked him directly why he finished that novel as he did. And remember, the novel was Captain Quig had some problems. And yet people conspired and were relentless and trying to expose them and exaggerate them. And the end of the novel, as in the end of the movie, was a denunciation of people who tried to destroy a person when they could have helped him and they could have helped the ship of state, so to speak. When he says that, what he's basically saying, at least according to the author who wrote the novel and the playwright, was we did our best to make somebody who was insecure or unsure of himself or narcissistic, whatever you want to say about Trump, we made sure that it would be impossible for him to govern in a way that was impossible to understand. That was the message. It was forgotten. Yeah, now, Quig, now the Queek characterization was my interpretation of Kinzinger's remarks, no. but that's ex- but that's no. exactly but that's ex- I don't know that he's ever read or watched or is even uh, aware of the existence of that uh, piece of art, but um, but but that's exactly what he was essentially indicating, and, and but but yeah. for a, for a Republican congressman to publicly join Schumer and Pelosi. And those of the left who have been trying to impeach or encourage the resignation of Trump since January 20th of 2017. What does that say about um, the Republican Party's uh, prospects going forward? And and I'll tell you what, let's uh, hold it right there and I'll get your answer to that question on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of books including The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And the case for Trump. We'll be back with with more right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show we're pleased to be joined by victor davis hansen classicist and historian at the hoover institution at stanford author of books including the second world wars how the first global conflict was fought and won and the case for trump and VDH, before the break, uh, I put the question to you. Uh, Kinzinger joining with uh, Pelosi and Schumer, 
calling for Trump to be to be removed from office. Either he takes the stairs or he goes out the window. And then in addition, you also mentioned uh, the sort of performance art resignations from cabinet officials and other administration officials who suggest that they can't abide Trump's rhetoric on Wednesday. And so they're leaving with two weeks to go. What does that say about forget the national unity? What does it say about the prospects for unity within the GOP ranks and and a concerted effort to do things like win back the House and the Senate in 2022? Well, I, I think they don't understand that politics are volatile. So we're going to have a Senate controlled by the Democrats and a House and a presidency. And they have said that if they can get Joe Manchin to support the end of the filibuster, they have a pretty wild agenda, whether it's, as you know, um, packing a court or getting in the Electoral College or letting in Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. And that's the beginning, a national voting law that will probably emphasize only mail-in voting. Who knows? And what are these people going to do when that starts? And this economy is very fragile. and We have a lockdown still, and we've got a lot of people overseas who feel that for some reason Joe Biden might be at 78 less than muscular uh, uh, you know commander in chief and that's China Iran are we going to go back in the Iran deal we're going to bring back the Palestinians and give them another seven there's all these questions that were never answered because Joe Biden never campaigned and he was never explicit about what he did only that he had done a Faustian bargain with a hard left to carry them across the finish line now they want their IOUs paid in full so my point is that it's going to get really radical in a way we haven't seen since 1964 with LBJ following the Kennedy assassination when they had all the reins of government or in 32. And what, are, what is Mr. Kissinger going, to, uh, Kissinger going to say, Congressman, what's he going to say when all this happens? He's going to come around and say, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. This is terrible. And what are the never Trumpers going to say? This is horrible. Unite under our banner. I don't think that it's going to happen. And so politics, things are very volatile and will change. I think everybody realizes that when the majority of people say something, it's not always accurate. And that's why we have a constitutional republic. So we don't impeach or we don't sick, you know, government on people to feed the frenzy of the mob. Donald Trump's got 12 days left, essentially, and nobody believes he's going to do anything wrong. And all this is to get a scalp before they go so they can say Donald Trump was the first president to be removed involuntarily. Ha, ha, ha. And I don't think they're going to really go through with any of it. Do they really want to institutionalize the promiscuous use of the 25th Amendment when Joe Biden comes into office? Well, not to mention, I mean, especially for a Republic, purely Republican political interests, uh, you want to be a party to that? And, and you think whatever percentage of the, the 75 million votes Trump got that are dyed-in-the-wool loyalists of Trump, you really want to alienate them? Uh, in that way? I mean, what do you think that will do? It just tears at the social fabric generally and within the Republican Party specifically that much more. But I do wonder, and, and the, Pence has already indicated he's not going to participate in any 25th Amendment action, which is a Pence, I think, dutifully rising above the nonsense. But I wonder, um, speaking of Pence, if uh, Trump owes Pence an apology for how he characterized uh, Pence's um, you know, administration of his duties in the certification process. Oh, I think he does. I mean, I, I go back to the, Mike Pence took a big hit all during the controversies of the administration. He was steadfastly loyal, but he wasn't just loyal. He was effective. If you remember that debate with Kamala Harris that came after Trump's own disasters. I think the yes. disastrous first debate. He had a great second debate, but not the first. And, and there were people saying, you know, he's all true. And Pence rose with the, the occasion, just really demolished Harris in that debate. And he was always loyal. And 
Uh, I think he's been a wonderful vice president. I, I think that Trump absolutely owes him an apology. Trump was at a fork in the road. I think that once the electors were chosen in the second week of December, it was clear that election was not going to be overturned. It wouldn't, probably wasn't going to be anyway, but he had a right to, there were legitimate questions, so he did, did the lawsuits, he did the recounts, he did the uh, brought in data, statisticians, etc. That was all okay. But once the electors were there, it was misleading, I think, people to suggest that they were going to overturn that election. And at that point, I wished he had have been Andrew Jackson in 1824 and said, I've been dealt aggrievously uh, conducted injustice and I'm going down to Georgia and it's not going to be about me. It's going to be about winning this Senate. We're going to hold the Senate and then we're going to take the house. And he would be, I think he would have had a wonderful immediate future. I'm not saying that he doesn't, he's not going to recover, but that would have been wiser than I think drawing this out with the likes of, you know, people clinging to him like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and all that. Group. Yes. I think that was a strategic mistake. And uh, I think he paid a price for it. Uh, Michael uh, Lynn, professor down at uh, University of Texas, uh, append a piece uh, that where he describes what he believes are the five crises uh, uh, that that America faces: political identity, social, demographic, and economic. But I want to focus on the political and get your reaction. He believes the central political crisis America faces is and has been and continues to be the centralization of power in a small number of ambitious elite factions and coteries. And I wonder if, if you agree with that and, and how you see that playing out going forward, because it seems to me that uh, for as um, much of a, a watershed moment Trump's election is, for those who believe that this is the central political crisis, it seems maybe perhaps coming out of the Trump administration, you're even more exasperated and frustrated than you were going into the 2016 election. Well, I agree entirely. I think whether it's the IRS that we saw under Obama or whether it was Jim Comey's FBI or whether it was John Brennan's CIA or the use of the FISA courts, whatever the surveillance state, uh, people who are not elected and are not accountable are running our government. And that was what Trump ran against. And that also applies to his other signature issues. Restore a hollowed out middle class in the interior that had been destroyed by globalization secure the borders and don't confuse residency, illegal or not, with citizenship, which was different. He took on the unelected that were trying to change the Constitution. He took on the global idea that we're going to be citizens of the world with our first allegiance you know, to the EU or the UN or something. And all of that has been checkmated right now because not only did uh, he was not elect- re-elected, but he ended in... in, in defeat and, and in some ways humiliation. And so what's happening is that the super control, if I could use the vernacular of the Congress and the executive branch and maybe soon the Supreme Court is going to be fueled by, well, Donald Trump's people attack the Capitol and therefore you must give us even more power. They want an equality of results society. And they, they think that they have the power to enact that and they're merciless. They have no compassion for people getting their way. And we saw that with BLM and Antifa this summer. And I'm really worried about it. The only thing I can say is that every, every supermajority overreaches. It happened to Obama. It happened to George Bush. It happened to Donald Trump even in 2018. There's always a correction, whether it's fair or not. So there will be some correction, but the damage is going to be immense in the next two years. We're going to see things uh, passed by the Congress and signed by Joe Biden and appointees made by Joe Biden and executive orders that we haven't seen in a long time. People thought well, that Donald Trump was polarizing. They haven't seen nothing yet. 
He is Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of books including The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, and The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks as always. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and um, I thought this was an interesting Facebook post. I like Facebook posts by sort of non-political, ordinary people in different walks of life. This is from Larry Correa, who is a, uh, uh, a, a, a fantasy novelist, sort of a graphic fiction, uh, writing about Trump. I don't even like Trump. But I've spent the last four years getting screamed at by angry people for defending him when I'm actually usually just defending basic reality. This, by the way, posted in the last 24 hours. Um, When people have valid concerns, they get mocked, belittled, and insulted. Then they get gaslighted and told what they've seen with their own eyes didn't happen. And then they're fact-checked, quote-unquote, with things that are basically a list of excuses generated by partisans who have zero clue what they're talking about. Repeat that daily for literally every topic, and you get to the point where nobody trusts anybody, and we have massive competing groups that can't even agree on basic pieces of relative truth anymore. And social media then rubs that in everyone's face so we don't feel any commonality with our countrymen. Uh huh. And that's the recipe for what we've seen play out over the last year, in part, isn't it? This feeling uh, among so many from different ideological perspectives, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do in response to these grievances I have, in response to these slights that I have suffered? Uh, Some real, some arguable. For more on the topic and the answer to that question, in part at least, I don't know if there's a single answer, We're pleased to be joined again by Professor William Jacobson. He's a clinical professor of law, the director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School. He is also a founder of the indispensable LegalInsurrection.com blog and president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. Professor Jacobson, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me back. Uh, What is your response to uh, Mr. Correa and uh, those who have essentially suggested, uh, you know, similar Uh, about uh, where we are? Well, I think we are going through a uh, political secession, if you will, not a a physical one. I think the sides are separating from each other. I think a lot of that is driven by a tech and, um, you know, big media suppression of voices. A lot of people are getting kicked off or stifled on Twitter and leaving for parlor or leaving Facebook I think we've eliminated the ability for people to talk to and listen to each other. And I think that is only going to get worse. I think we're continuing to go down a road that we're going to live in separate universes. In the aftermath of what happened at the Capitol, uh, you see a, a purge on social media going on. You see calls 
for uh, people to be permanently banned from social media, to be banned from taking airline flights, uh, all other things. There, I think what happened, uh, while it's detestable, is now going to be exploited to further push the country into two opposing camps that don't even talk to each other. And it seems to me what you're pointing out in, in, the, uh, in terms of how this will be exacerbated through exploitation uh, is something that has been emblematic of all of these, uh, not all, so many of these instances, which is there is conduct and there is uh, one standard that's applied to the conduct when some people do it by uh, you know, those with cultural and political and legal power. And then there's the same conduct by another group of people, and there's a different standard applied to that conduct by those same individuals. That's right. All last summer, there were riots and looting, and the mainstream media essentially excused it. The uh, political elites uh, on the left excused it or even encouraged it in some cases. And so you had norms broken where we're supposed to have peaceful protest, but when it came from a left-wing perspective, when it came from the Black Lives Matter perspective, that violence was excused and in some places encouraged, including by the top leadership of the Democrat Party. But now that there is an incident, really the first incident on Capitol Hill of violence by people supporting Trump, all of a sudden they say, oh, you can't have that. Well, where were you last summer when in hundreds of cities around the country, the uh, you know, businesses were being looted and burned to the ground. People were being beaten up in the streets. Cars were being attacked on highways. Where were you during all that time? But now you want to come in and say it's unacceptable. Well, it's a little too late for that. Uh, when we come back with Professor Jacobson, I want to continue this conversation about uh, standards as well as uh, purging and also get his perspective uh, since he's written about it at LegalInsurrection.com about uh, the future of the Trump movement. More with Professor William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, founder of LegalInsurrection.com, must-read blog, and president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. And we were talking about uh, sort of all things that uh, came together this week that suggest the further degradation of our culture and certainly our political comedy in this country. And uh, just on the topic of the the purge and big tech, uh, Professor Jacobson, there's a, just an example, just to try and make this concrete. There's so many examples, but this is one from the week. There's a, a real estate agent named Libby Andrews in Chicago, where I live, and she was fired as a realtor for At Properties in Chicago because she posted on social media her presence at the rally on Wednesday. Now, she didn't post herself doing anything wrong. She wasn't inside the Capitol. She was on the Capitol steps. She's not been arrested or accused of any wrongdoing. But at Properties uh, said, we don't tolerate uh, violence or the incitement to violence. And there's no indication or even allegation that Libby Andrews had anything to do with the violence that occurred. And yet she's out of a job. 
And it seems to me this is, uh, you know, it's bigger than government policy. It's corporate culture and by extension, American culture that is um, inciting division, despite all of the pro forma calls for unity and reconciliation. I think what makes the situation very different now than it was even two years ago or three years ago is the involvement of corporations in policing speech and enforcing political orthodoxy. There, I hear all the time from people that they're afraid to say anything on social media for fear that somebody at their work will see it, disagree, and try to get them fired. The so-called cancel culture has been pushed very deep into society. It's no longer just an instance of a celebrity losing a book deal, as bad enough as that is. It's now everyday people who are being purged from their work, being told they're not allowed to work anymore and that they will be pursued. And this is something that Democrats and and leftists are bragging about, that they are going to pursue people at work and they are going to pursue people and make sure they never can earn a living again because they disagree with them politically. These are not people who've committed violence or been charged even with a crime. You know, the thing about it is, we, I, I, the, the way I've talked about this before, too, is, you know, you can only take so much from somebody without generating a reaction. You can only take so much of their liberty, their property, really their life without generating a reaction. And this is in context of a lot of things, including COVID policies. But it, it's almost as if um, those who are in the business of taking are perfectly aware of that. They know the response it's going to generate, and the response it generates provides the opportunity for the moral indignation to advance more taking. Is that fair or is that conspiratorial? No, I I think that's true. I think that there are a lot of people, and they're almost exclusively from the left, who are drunk with social media power. The ability to form a mob quickly on social media, the ability to bombard your employer with hundreds of tweets and Facebook messages within an hour has really emboldened a lot of people, and they can all do it from their keyboard. They don't have to confront you. They don't have to go to your employer. We've seen so many cases where major corporations, one or two or three people tweet something at them, and they either fire somebody or they suspend a program or they cut off advertising to a show. And that is a tactic which has been developed over a number of years by groups like Media Matters and now Sleeping Giants is They have these secondary boycotts. They tell people not don't watch Fox News. They don't really care about that, but they go after advertisers. And that has now moved down into radio shows and websites. There's an organized effort against conservative websites to get advertisers not to advertise there. And so this is a really a movement on the left, and it is almost exclusively from the left, which is completely drunk with social media power And the people who run the major social media platforms agree with them. Facebook, Twitter, all of the big ones are in political agreement with these social media drunkards who are power hungry. And it's a really dangerous dynamic. Speaking of movements, uh, you wrote that after this week and what happened Wednesday, the trajectory at minimum of the Trump movement has forever altered where do you see you know, some percentage of the 75 million people who voted for Trump who are still committed to Trump and will stay committed to Trump? Where do you see that going? What I wrote was that the, the Trump movement, as we knew it, no longer can exist after what happened on Capitol Hill. People need to be realistic about it. You can be a Trump supporter, 
but you need to be realistic about how the political landscape has changed. You can't pretend nothing has changed. The Trump power, political power, was not just his core supporters. He got almost 74 or 75 million votes. I don't know exactly what percentage we would categorize as core supporters, but it's significant. Maybe it's 30 million, maybe it's 40 million, whatever the number is. There were also tens of millions of people who supported Trump, but supported him only because, one, what the alternative was, and two, they liked his policies, and they didn't like the way he was abused. But those people, the half of his supporters or a quarter or whatever the percentage is, I think are probably pretty disgusted, not just with what happened on Capitol Hill, but the refusal to the bitter end to recognize the reality of the lost election. And Trump gave a speech last night about the violence in which he acknowledged the election result. If he had done that three days ago or four days ago, I think the movement would have been in much better shape. The problem is Trump and many of his supporters boxed themselves into a dead end. And the dead end was once the legal challenges had failed, and I supported people are entitled to file lawsuits and follow them through to the end. But by the second week in December, those had all played out. There was going to be no judicial remedy to this. So then they seized upon something which was not, never going to happen. The Democrat House was never, ever going to vote to rescind the votes, uh, to uphold challenges to the votes from states that went for Biden. That was never going to happen. But that was the method, one of the two methods that was pursued, that we're going to lawfully raise challenges under a federal law. You can raise challenges to electoral votes, and we're going to push that, and we're going to contest it in the Congress, even though you knew the result could not happen. The second dead end that was pursued, which was even worse, was that we're going to pressure Mike Pence to disallow the votes. So I think that had Trump given the speech he gave last night, three days ago or four days ago, the Trump movement would be moving forward very powerfully, maybe even stronger than before. He is Professor William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School, founder of LegalInsurrection.com and president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. Professor Jacobson, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Just continuing our discussion of the purge that we were having with Professor Jacobson from Cornell Law. Just a couple more examples and where you think this gets us in terms of uh, reconciliation, healing, unity. Not that when politicians, most politicians at least, use those words, they confer any real desired meaning. Uh, this uh, from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, their offensive line coach, a guy named Chris Malone, he gone. Why? Because he tweeted out this. Congratulations to the state of Georgia and Fat Albert at Stacey Abrams, because you have truly shown America the true works of cheating an election again. Enjoy the buffet, big girl. You earned it. Hope the money is good. Still not governor. Students and faculty at University of 
Tennessee Chattanooga were outraged. Of course they were. This is uh, misogynistic and it's racist and it's fat shaming. And Chris Malone is separated from his position on the football team. Uh, Is that tweet in good taste? No. Do you want uh, corporate institutions, universities, the federal government in charge of what is in good taste or not as it pertains to employment? I understand that uh, they can fire Malone per whatever his contractual arrangement is. And as I said, this is not in good taste. But um, I also am somebody who engages in ridicule of politicians all the time. And I defend that ridicule of politicians. Oh, is it uncivil and so on and so forth? No, actually, I don't think it is, generally speaking. I think much of the ridicule, even of a personal nature, is a reminder to both the target as well as to that person's constituents or political allies that uh, these people in office or these people in positions of authority are our temporary representatives, not our betters, and much less permanent betters. I have a nickname for Illinois, where I live, Jelly Belly, J.B. Pritzker, Jelly Belly, because he's a big fat guy. He's also Jewish. Does making, does calling him Jelly Belly make my comment anti-Semitic? No, it doesn't. Fat shaming? Give me a break. I'm making fun of Chris Christie's weight, as many have done over the years in, in the context of Jersey politics as well as national politics. Uh, you know, name calling. Yes. Is ad hominem the highest form of point making? No, it is not. But the idea that uh, these are the litmus tests for employment, I mean, you really want to end somebody because they made a distasteful tweet or because they engaged in name calling, juvenile sophomoric as it may be, myself included. You know, fortunately, uh, I can get away with it to a certain extent, a legitimate extent, as I've described for the purposes I intend. But I just don't think you want to go there in a culture where the left characterizes everybody they disagree with as a Nazi. (laughs) Is that slightly more offensive than making fun of somebody's weight? And by the way, the targets of the ridicule, particularly public figures, should have a little bit thicker skin have the armadillo skin radio talk show host like me have and recognize that being in the public arena means you get subjected to criticisms both of a substantive as well as a non-substantive personal nature oh well so sad grow up toughen up you know this is Dan Proff this is the Dan Proft show The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, you can follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parler. December jobs report minus... 140,000 jobs, the first time in seven months that there has been a reduction in the number of jobs created. You know what that means? That's great news for the stock market because everything is great news for the stock market, apparently, even, no matter how cataclysmic and no matter how 
anti-growth, no matter how contractionary. Good news for the stock market, 140,000 jobs lost in December, right? Scott Shalady, Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business contributor, joins us now. Hi, Scott. Yeah, that's uh, it's not good. I mean, we were expecting a gain of around 70,000. And we lost 140,000, and you're exactly right. It's perplexing, and I and I listen to uh, my cohorts on all the other different uh, outlets, channels, and, and radio, and they try to explain it away when I don't think they should be because I think it just sows mistrust between the general public and people in the industry. Sometimes stuff just moves for the wrong reasons, and I think this is a classic example. There's nowhere uh, else to put your money. Let, let, me, let me explain it to you, Scott. Uh, what we have here uh, in the industry is known as the fiscal Goldilocks scenario that has presented itself. We have, uh, with uh, socialists winning two Senate seats in Georgia, we now have confirmation that we will continue to get uh, easy money, funny money. The printing presses will continue to roll. That's good news. We won't get the big tax increases and the, the regulatory overreach because we'll have the easy money and because there'll be just enough moderates in the House and the Senate, Joe Manchin in the Senate, a couple in the House, to forestall any big tax increases or regulatory overreaches. So what you have is the a Pareto equilibrium, if you will, uh, for policy. Okay. Well, that is the pill that is being shoved down the goose's neck right now. And I think that I, I don't agree with it. I mean, I understand that, but I don't have to agree with it. And here's where I come from. Last I checked, you have to have a decent economy. We've been growing at a slower rate month on month. Yesterday's jobless claims combined with, I mean, we have 19 million people still on some sort of unemployment. And today we have 140,000 lost jobs, of which 500,000 were lost in leisure and hospitality. A half a million. Now, this goes to what I've been saying. We haven't been really counting all of those businesses and all those big buildings in New York, you know, L.A. and Chicago that aren't going to come back because there's nobody in the buildings. And they're only, say, in New York, occupied to about 8% occupancy. These businesses in the cities have to have these buildings at 80% occupancy to make money. So we've had our head in the sand. It's now starting to come to fruition. And we've just walked into a guy that does want to have higher taxes, said he's running on higher taxes. It's actually a $4.4 trillion tax hike plan. But the market continues to go up because everybody thinks exactly what you just said. But I think that the basic premise is we have to have a decent economy. And we're starting to slow down. We could have a bad economy. And so what happens to businesses that are going to go out of business? I mean, we've lost at least 20% of our small businesses right now. Now, we might, and I think that number is growing, and I think it's actually double that. So you can't continue to go up on, on vapor. And I, look, I'm not here to tell anybody where to put their money, but I'm just going to tell you that the, the yellow caution lights have got to be flashing because you've, you've seen insane rallies in, in Bitcoin, and you've seen the stock market shrug off anything that's been bad, especially today. Because, hey, this is where the easy money is going. We're going to get yeah, exactly. If you were here to tell us where to put our money, you would have told us months ago to put all our money in Bitcoin. Where were you, Scott? <laughs> well, I'm not a big fan of that either. So, I mean, look, I didn't believe, I can't believe people pay more for bottled water than gasoline, too. So, I mean, there's a few things out there that still defy common sense. <laughs> so, just be careful because this we're getting into la-la land when it comes to investors. And I do believe, I really do, that uh, the man on the street has a better feeling for things than a lot, of, a lot of times the people in the industry. And this is sowing mistrust. When you continue to hear lockdown, lockdown, and then you see the stock market continue to go up every day, I think that just sows mistrust, and I think it should because – you know, we, we, we're still on some very shaky ground. And again, I say this every single time I come on, we are getting our economy is slowly coming back, but it's slowly coming back at a worse pace every month. And at some point in time, that could turn over. And then what is the administration going to do? Are they going to tax everybody on a downturn? I mean, it's just insane. So you have to be very careful. I think this is 
when you see moves like you have in Bitcoin, you have to stop to think, hey, things that go that you know in that direction for me can also go in the direction against me, and you got to really start to be careful here. I really would I'm stress that. Well, something else uh, with that new voter and some of the old voters, too, it turns out. I mean, some from Comrade uh, Sanders' generation, too. Um, we have just uh, we, we're, we're changing what we understand to be true about how the world works. We understand what we understand to be true about man's nature, what we understand to be true about how uh, a free society, uh, how an economy in a free society works. We used to believe that private enterprise grew economies. Now we believe government does. You're exactly right. With the strap in and get ready for the universal basic income because that's where we're going. We're going to pay people to stay home because you know there's going to be so much technological innovation. We're going to have so many people out of work that the government's still going to be humming along and they're going to start paying people the universal basic income. And it's it's an old idea and it's not really ever worked, but that's where we're going to go and people are going to fall for it. I wanted to get your reaction to a comment that was made by uh, Joel Ross, who's uh, has the Citadel Realty uh, newsletter. He's one of the in addition to you, one of the guys I look to for uh, insights, he uh, writes, the next several years are going to be very troubling for uh, those folks who do believe that the private sector grows economies. Low-income workers are going to find themselves out of jobs and replaced by automation as the $15 minimum wage and pro-union policies kick in. The worst hurt will be blacks who will see their opportunities for full-time jobs go away despite huge pressures on companies to hire them. Bond investors will suffer as rates rise and inflation sprouts. Innovation will once again be constrained as it was under Obama-Biden due to excessive regulation. Infrastructure projects will again become delayed as new government environmental regulation goes back to impeding any hope of getting projects underway quickly. He uh, suggests higher energy prices are in the offing, and all you're going to get in terms of policy response is um, the Fed buying more and more federal debt as there's simply not the capacity in sovereign markets to accommodate the flood of debt, which is already at 108% of GDP. Does he have it about sussed out? Yeah, I mean, I, I would have disagreed with probably only one or two of those things, but yeah. I absolutely agree 100%. That's, I mean, we can't continue to do this, and everybody thinks we can. And forget about saying that stupid saying about kicking the can down the road. I mean, at some point in time, when are we going to wake up from this nightmare? Because there isn't going to be, we're all waiting for what Bill Clinton got lucky to have, is that, you know, that new technological innovation coming around the corner and saving everybody. I mean, what's going to be the new technological innovation? What electron transport, feed me up, Scotty, we're all going to Mars in five minutes. I mean, where is this going to come from? Because that's why, that's all we've been doing is Printing money. I get this has been happening since 08. Printing money. We haven't had any inflation pressures because the economy has been so poor in the hopes that we're going to be rescued by some new technological innovation coming around the corner. And it, nobody knows what it is yet. We still can't find it. And, you know, there's a leak in the economic engine because what we're putting in is not coming out the exhaust. So we have, I mean, I think that there's big problems out there, systemic problems, but we're going to just continue to live in this la-la land because we've never really been pressed. But no one's really ever had anything bad happen to them, per se. And the government's going to continue to print until, I don't know, when, when's, when's enough enough? At 150% of GDP? I mean, it's, this is, to me is absolutely insane. And every, this is where I can't stand about it, Dan and Amy, is now everybody's expecting things to go up even during bad news. It's like, oh, well, this is what the market does. Well, you know what? I've been doing this for 33 years. It doesn't. But right now, that's the world we're in, and everybody's got short-termism, right? Whatever happened yesterday is going to happen again today. Uh, I wanted to get uh, your reaction. Go back to Bitcoin for just a second, because I wanted to get um, one of our comments you have to say about Bitcoin spiking to, I think it's north of $41,000. 42. Present. 42 now. It seems to me, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to gather whether this is going to 300000 or 3000 
I, I have no idea. But it, it seems to me that crypto's advantage is difficult to maintain because it's sort of an exotic vehicle. But if it ever goes mainstream, then you're going to have the formal banking sector uh, <laughs> operating in reserve in electronic reserve currencies, and that will eliminate its scarcity and thus its value. 100%. I mean, for all the stupid licenses that I have to have to be able to do this job, um, one of the biggest ones is this money laundering. They're always worried about, you know, I have to take exams upon exams. about you know, Bitcoin is going to be the easiest way to launder money. So until, you know, once this does finally become mainstream, the government's going to move into that space. It's over, in my mind. I, I, don't, the, the, I understand the uh, allure, but at the same time, once it does become, like you said, mainstream, the government's going to want to tax it, right? They're going to want to get involved, and they're going to. And then you already start, they're already starting to get involved. I know that they're starting to value your Bitcoin on your taxes and things like that. So this is going to be, I think, another uh, – watch it. If it goes to 300000 it's going to be a great example of rememberpets.com. You know, that's what it feels like to me. So, but, but, I mean, if you're, if you're talking to uh, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin investor, are, are you basically saying you know, there is a window, but that window closes as soon as the formal banking system and the government and the combination of the two get involved in mainstreaming this? So, so that's the horizon. Yeah. Does anybody think that the government's just going to let Bitcoin go on unchecked forever? I mean, you have to ask yourself that. No, the answer is no. It's not going to happen, especially when the government's more and more distressed and needs to find a place to, you know, they can't tax the people, you know, 15 percent on their houses in, in you know, South Chicago anymore. They're going to have to look to something. And it's going to be things like that. And that's where they're going to go. So I think that there's going to be a honeymoon period. We're probably in the middle of it right now. But there's also going to be a come to Jesus. And, and that's when the government really starts to weigh in. He is Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business regular and regular on the morning. Too. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Have a good weekend. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Returning to uh, the events of this week at the Capitol and subsequently, of course, uh, we report that the number of dead from Wednesday and subsequently, including a Capitol Police officer who died yesterday. Just to you know, set the foundation again here, we played Ianna Presley's comments from the, back in the fall where she talked about the need for persistent street protests in whatever form they may take. With all of the uh, preening and moral indignation at uh, CNN these days, thought it might be fun to walk back in history a year and listen to Fredo Cuomo talking about those same protests, those same mostly peaceful protests that uh, were punctuated by violence and laying siege to property and injuring police and killing people, the death of people throughout America's urban centers and not so urban centers, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the course of the summer into the fall of 20. Show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. I'll show you where they're supposed to be peaceful. Pick a state criminal code, any state criminal code. That's where it says they're supposed to be peaceful. Legitimate protest in this country ends with civil disobedience, as I've said before. But that was the posture that was taken by all of these newly minted law and order types you're watching on cable news channels. All of a sudden have problem with violence. Not in the business of rationalizing, contextualizing it at present. 
uh, making distinctions between majorities rallying who are peaceful and insular minorities who engage in violence or looting. Not in the redefinition business anymore, like the 1619 Project's Nicole Hannah-Jones, who characterized looting as a symbolic taking. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, just in terms of a little walk down memory lane with American history, nothing new in this world, only the history we don't know. Thank you, Harry S. Truman. 1954 United States Capitol shooting. Four Puerto Rican nationalists fired on members of the House, wounding five representatives. Thankfully, all of them survived. Some of you will know, remember this or, or know it because you're students of history. They were, of course, uh, protesting for Puerto Rican independence. So they were arrested and given effectively life sentences. And then in 1978 and 1979, they were pardoned by President Jimmy Carter. Remember that part? In... Uh, 2001, on the last day of his presidency, Bill Clinton granted a full pardon to Susan Rosenberg, 16 years into a 58-year sentence for possession of guns and over 700 pounds of explosives. Susan Rosenberg, a member of the Weather Underground, and numerous other succeeding domestic terrorist splinter groups. She had allegedly participated in the 83 bombing of the U.S. Capitol as a member of something called the Armed Resistance Unit. The explosion blew off Senate Minority Leader Robert Byrd's door, ripped through a painting of Daniel Webster and damaged the Senate cloakroom. We purposely aimed our attack at the institutions of imperialist rule rather than at individual members of the ruling class, the Capitol Bombers contended. We did not choose to kill any of them at this time, but their lives are not sacred. Uh, in Illinois, my home state, we take weather members of the weather underground and we make them tenured professors so they get, uh, some of them at least, taxpayer finance pensions like Bill Ayers, tenured professor now retired from the University of Illinois, Chicago. His wife, Bernadine Dorn, who ran the North Northwestern University Family Law Clinic. James Kilgore, another convicted terrorist professor at the University of Illinois. So just a little bit of context there with uh, all of those who are losing their minds over what happened, who have a on-again, off-again relationship with the rule of law. Uh, speaking of the rule of law, a two things. One, or three things. One, there is a picture circulating of uh, an individual who is believed to be the person who planted the pipe bombs at both the RNC and the DNC the offices. So hopefully that individual will be identified and we can start to get profiles on some of the people, some of the more than four dozen people who've been arrested already. So we get some characterization of whether or not uh, the infiltrators that were identified by firms that do facial recognition scans, the investigation by the FBI and Paul Sperry at Real Clear Investigations reporting get some indication of just the distribution here of those who engaged in violence. Additionally, there is a criminal murder investigation into the death of Brian Sicknick. He is the Capitol Police officer who died from injuries he suffered on Wednesday. The report is that he was struck in the head with a fire extinguisher. He uh, returned to his division office on Wednesday, taken to the hospital. He died on Thursday, unfortunately. The department said he was injured while physically engaging with protesters. And there's some conflicting reports whether he got hit in the head with a fire extinguisher or he suffered from a chemical, uh, from a reaction to the chemicals. The fire extinguisher was uh, expended. I don't know, but there should be a, a criminal murder investigation into his death. And whoever, if, if there is any party that was responsible, uh, consistent with the reporting at present, then obviously that person should be brought to justice too. And unlike Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton, no Donald Trump and no Joe Biden, for that matter, should be pardoning anybody. Or unlike the media and the Democrat socialist establishment uh, over the last year, excusing violence. And then finally, the matter of Ashley Babbitt. And you know, this is pending, too. You have the Capitol officer who, who shot and killed Ashley 
Babbitt on administrative leave. I have to tell you, it is concerning in terms of whether this more than concerning. Based on the videos that have circulated so far, you have Ashley Babbitt, who is unarmed. I think it seems relatively clearly she was unarmed. Even though she was in the Capitol, she shouldn't have been there. She was trying to climb through a window that had been broken on the door into the House chamber, and she shouldn't have been doing that, clearly. We've seen the sort of one of the pictures that emerged from Wednesday of the officers blockading the door and with guns drawn pointing at those trying to break in. But that window space that was knocked out, I mean, it didn't really provide for the mob to bum rush police officers who were barricading themselves in front of that door with guns drawn. And it really didn't provide much space for uh, other than people who were slight, like Ashley Babbitt, to get in in the first place. I mean, for for example, a guy my size, I don't think I could have fit through that space. And it, it also seemed from some of the videos that in the background you had Capitol Police They didn't do anything on the side of the door in which Ashley Babbitt was trying to get to the other side of the door. And so you have this situation where she's climbing through. That's the only entrance point at at that point. And as soon as she gets into that window space, she is shot in the, the chest or neck, conflicting reports on that too, and blown back onto the floor. And people have seen that. Um, so I think they're, you know, it's it's administrative uh, leave. The officer is on, and there's an investigation into that shooting. And I think, uh, as with all of the shootings, police-involved shootings that we've talked about in this show, most in the context of bla- of white officer and and black individual, you know, the facts, the specifics, the rules of engagement in uh, uh, the Capitol, the training, the law, all of these are at bar. But is that a situation where an officer has a reasonable fear for his life such that lethal force is appropriate? Even in the case of somebody doing something illegal, the force still has to be proportional. And the threshold, generally speaking, for the use of lethal force is reasonable fear for serious bodily injury or death or that that person is going to uh, endanger, is it imminent threat to endanger public safety more generally? The mob context is part of that discussion. But from what I've seen so far... Boy, I got to tell you, it doesn't look like a good shoot to me. And it's a discussion we should have about this to keep it in the public arena to make sure the investigation is uh, reported on, that this gets the sort of attention that uh, any other police involved shooting, particularly those that have a a racial component, get. And that, um, you know, there's justice in every direction with respect to the rule of law as it was abrogated on Wednesday at the Capitol. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, Wall Street Journal editorial board opining yesterday. If Mr. Trump wants to avoid a second impeachment, his best path would be to take personal responsibility and resign. This would be the cleanest solution since it would immediately turn presidential duties over to Mr. Pence. It is best for everyone, himself included, if he goes away quietly, writes the journal. This is before uh, President Trump tweeted this morning that uh, he will uh, not attend Biden's inauguration on January 20th. Is uh, 
that uh, the best for everyone, including President Trump. We put that question to our friend Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Chicago, regular commentator at RealClearPolitics.com and other sites. Charles, what do you think? Well, I think it's a terrible thing that he's attending the inauguration. I wrote a column about that. I don't think he should resign, but I don't think he should be impeached or, and I certainly don't think that the 25th Amendment should be invoked. The 25th Amendment was designed to deal with a situation that occurred with Woodrow Wilson, where he had had a serious stroke and was impaired and could not uh, serve as the genuine president in terms of action. It's not intended as a substitute for impeachment. I think what Trump should do is absolutely nothing between now and and the inauguration, nothing important that would shake up. I think we're at a very delicate moment. And uh, with respect to the Republican Party more generally, there's sort of an assessment in, uh, implicit in your comments about uh, Trump's handling of the week, particularly Wednesday. What about the Republican Party generally and uh, how it uh, pieces itself back together after January 20th? I think things are a mess for Republicans right now. Their brand is damaged badly in the public, not only by, mostly by what happened on Wednesday with the uh, riot in the Capitol, but also because Trump uh, really was uh, a full day before he said what should have been said immediately and clearly and in public, which was that this is absolutely outrageous. These people should go home. He did not in any way condone it. All the things that you and I would say he should he should have said immediately. At least I think he should have said it immediately. And it was not acceptable that he waited as long as he did. Right. And, you know, it's um, one of those things where I think uh, we talked a little bit earlier in the program with Victor Davis Hanson and said, you know, most conservatives uh, roundly condemn violence uh, in, at the Capitol just as quickly as they roundly condemn violence on the streets of America over the last uh, eight months and for the same reasons. So it's not like that is in controversy. There's no, nobody's debating whether or not uh, the violence at the Capitol was appropriate or legitimate. It clearly was not just but 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 it's it is interesting that conservatives have been consistent on the matter of law and order. We have some new allies, perhaps temporary ones uh, that are pro law and order, but um, you know they are trying to summit the moral high ground because they have the uh, communication channels to do so, however illegitimately. And I'm talking about those leftists in the press as well as those Democrat socialists in the two chambers. Oh, I completely agree with that. And in writing about that, which I did on uh, Wednesday, I published uh, a piece in the Spectator USA, which is the American site for the British magazine. The title was, This is Not What a Constitutional Republic Looks Like. I pointed out that a whole summer of civil disorders, which went unpunished, that's a critically important, not unpunished and uncondemned, as you know, you know, at the Democratic National Convention, they didn't say a word about it. And yeah, good point. Uh, I think that that sets the stage. You can't just say, well, one side is going to do things. But but the Republicans split on um, on Trump now leaves them in the position, uh, a 
that they look like they're only against some kinds of violence. They should be against all kinds of violence. Secondly, uh, an attack on our capital, and especially when the uh, votes for uh, confirming the new uh, president and vice president are being counted, is a much, much graver uh, issue uh, than even uh, uh, the riots that we saw in downtown Minneapolis and San Francisco and Portland. Portland, the attack on the um, on the federal courthouse was a very serious matter, but attack on the U.S. Capitol uh, it is just an extremely grave matter and I, should yeah. have been treated that way. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to pick up on that, the importance of that and, and this uh, this sort of running issue we have that's only going to get worse, it would seem, is sort of the, the loss of faith in the governing institutions in America. More with Professor Maris of Political Science from the University of Chicago, Charles Lipson, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this. It's the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Professor Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Poli Sci at the University of Chicago, regular commentator, realclearpolitics.com and other sites, and um, trying to employ uh, big brains like yours, Charles, to address this question of the loss of faith in America's governing institutions. Uh, this has uh, uh, you know, been a long-running conversation, and ironically, since the, 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 the revolt that led to Trump's election was supposed to restore some of that faith, it seems even among Trump supporters, and perhaps most pronounced among Trump supporters, four years after Trump's election, there is even less faith than in the governing institutions than there was prior to his election. And um, boy, that seems to me where violence is a symptom of that and again, illegitimate. That seems to me sort of the fundamental problem that that is what makes everything about our politics volatile. And um, I don't hear a lot of great ideas and perhaps because it's going to be so difficult to restore confidence, to restore faith in not necessarily our founding documents, but the institutions that are supposed to uphold the principles uh, contained in those documents. You are so right, Dan, and you put it uh, very eloquently. The only thing I would add to that is that it's not just a breakdown in faith in our governing institutions. There's been a breakdown in public trust in virtually every institution in the country, right? If you look in the early 60s and ask questions like, do you trust the government? The answers were in the 70% positive range. Now they're under 20% and they are similar to numbers of, do you trust a used car dealer? But it goes beyond trust in the government. If you think about major institutions like the Catholic Church or the Boy Scouts or the private institutions like uh, social media platforms or the New York Times, there's just no trust in them. There's no trust in anything. And what has characterized Western constitutional democracies is a sense of common trust in each other. 
and in our institution. And so it's a very dangerous moment. That's why I was opposed. Uh, that's why I thought it was very important that the president uh, attend the inauguration, which he's not going to do, because it symbolizes constitutional continuity, and it says the opposing party is not the enemy, it is the loyal opposition, and we've got to restore that, and it's going to be very difficult because nobody's going to trust what they read at the New York Times or what gets posted on Twitter or anything else because they know these are biased, tendentious, uh, untrustworthy institutions. Maybe there's a, an opportunity in, in, um, at, at the local level in some of the states and, and some of the states in question, if this opportunity was seized upon, perhaps it would uh, inspire more confidence outside their boundaries, just as what happened in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia and Arizona has, oh, inspired, has inspired so much of a loss of confidence. And, and I'm speaking about uh, Republican-controlled state legislatures in those states that could sort of restore the way elections were run pre-COVID. Maybe that's the next fight to take up for the GOP that, that's specific to a handful of states but has national implications. Oh, I think that we have to do something uh, to, uh, to run uh, elections that are going to have massive mail-in uh, much better, and we have to uh, assure the public about the counting. I think in terms of a drawing together the country figure. I think maybe Pence is now in the best position to do that. Uh, you know, he, he, his behavior over the last several days has been uh, a model of rectitude. I know that there are a lot of pro-Trump people who think uh, he didn't behave well, but I actually think uh, he he did what was constitutionally required, and he, uh, and he has not expressed his his anger with Trump in public, he's done so privately. No, ag agreed, and uh, and he's also risen above the uh, the, the bait of uh, the left and, and even some uh, ostensibly within the party uh, to uh, not indulge this 25th Amendment business that you were speaking about earlier. Oh, I, mean, I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, it, 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 he, he's an example of someone, I you know, I, I know he doesn't... Uh, light people's hearts on fire with his charisma. But, of course, uh, as Midwesterners, right. we've watched Mike Pence for a long time as a congressman before he was Indiana governor, before he was vice president. And one of the things about Pence, um, uh, which is lacking in our politics, generally speaking, it seems to me, is he is somebody who is restrained, uh, as well as somebody who, as perhaps sometimes as um, he comes across as a, as a flack for the president. I mean, that's in part your job as vice president, oh, by the way. But I, I also think there's an authenticity to him that's also uh, in short supply. Completely agree with that. You put it well. Uh, and, and so... Um, I, 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 let me say something about the Republicans going forward, Dan. Okay. I think that the problem uh, for the Republicans now is not just what Trump did in the past, but what he is likely to do in the future. If he's stays in the picture as a major player and wants to run again in 2024, it's a huge problem for the Republicans because they, on the one hand, they need his base to win in the primaries, but they can't be wrapped around Trump if they hope to win in the general election. Four years is a long time from now and so forth, but still what Trump has done now sort of puts him in the Nixon level of public contempt, I think. Well, it's a, it, that's a, it's a really interesting point because, I mean, you know, in advance of the Georgia runoffs, you had this uh, 
this paradox of at the one hand saying you know Trump isn't doing you know isn't doing enough we, we need to he needs to rally he needs to be doing more to turn out his base to get Leffler and Purdue across the finish line on the other hand he's doing too much we need to minimize Trump's presence and 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 impact I, I don't know how you exactly walk that line especially with somebody who is as uh, off the cuff to be generous as he is I completely agree but I think the fact that there, the two defeats in Georgia leave him not only with the defeat in November, but with the two successive defeats. So he's he he leaves office, I think, at the lowest point of his presidency. He is Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science, University of Chicago, regular contributor to RealClearPolitics.com, as well as other sites. Charles, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. It's always great to talk with you, Dan, and I appreciated your comments. I thought they were uh, right on mark. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Just doing a quick hunk here on COVID. Ivermectin, which we talked about in yesterday's program with the uh, Deputy Secretary at HHS, another study out on Ivermectin. This is the anti-head lice drug, anti-parasitic drug, another drug that exists that is showing promise in treating COVID-19 patients who have mild to moderate cases. Uh, There is a a study out of Nigeria that suggests that um, there is efficacy with respect to the use of this as a therapeutic. Now, this study has not been peer-reviewed yet, but it is another study in addition to previous ones, including that we talked about yesterday, that show promise here. And so, again, thinking about vaccinations, vaccine out there, and think, well, we don't have to talk about therapeutics anymore because we have the vaccine and so on and so forth. Yeah, but again, the distribution and the implementation, as we're seeing, may take a lot longer than was initially projected by the government, unsurprisingly. And so let's also continue to follow the science and have discussions with our doctors about therapeutics that could treat. In addition to that, you know, again, the vaccine is not without some risk to individuals that have uh, particular medical profiles. And you're going to have uh, cases like this case out of Miami, where a 56-year-old otherwise healthy doctor died and his wife, in a lengthy Facebook post this week, believes that it was the Pfizer vaccine that triggered a reaction, negative reaction in Dr. Gregory Michael's system that ultimately led to his death. He received the coronavirus vaccine on December 18th, experienced side effects just days later, according to his wife. He was an obstetrician at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach. Uh, Pfizer is doing a death investigation. They're saying it's not clear to them. In fact, they don't believe that the vaccine was the proximate cause of his death, but he had a highly unusual case that developed shortly after taking the vaccine of a condition that decreases the body's ability to clot blood and stop internal bleeding. His platelet count went went to zero, where normal platelet count ranges from 150,000 to 450,000 platelets per microliter of blood. I'm just reading from the coverage here in the science. And then went on to explain, his wife did that, despite the widespread care for her husband, uh, his platelet count never increased. And uh, she uh, suggested that her husband was pro-vaccine, 
And she just wants to urge people to understand that there's, there are side effects that could arise from the shots for some people. Quote, it's not good for everyone. And in this case, destroyed a beautiful life, a perfect family, and has affected so many people in the community. Do not let his death be in vain. Please save more lives by making this information news. She implored the press, and now it is becoming news. And I don't want to overstate it. And this doesn't suggest that people should stop taking the vaccines, although it may explain why, as we talked about with Alex Berenson earlier in the week, He's not so hep to take the vaccine himself and certainly not to uh, administer it to his children because, of course, the risk, particularly to his kids, is infinitesimal of COVID, of actually being infected. So I'm not going to hype this case the way that the media hypes every COVID infection or every anomalous COVID case. Distinguish the standards here. It is worth reporting. It's part of the context. Let's be open and honest and talk through these things so people make informed risk assessments and associated with the choices they ultimately make with respect to living generally and taking the vaccine specifically. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parler. For uh, more on global issues, because that is her purview, we're pleased now to be joined by Katie McFarland. She is a former first deputy national security advisor, President Trump. She's also the author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. And uh, she uh, provided an excited utterance the last time I spoke with her. Unsolicited testimonial from Katie McFarland. She'll probably live to regret these words. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You absolutely have the best sort of high-level show of anybody in the country, so it's an honor. And KT, I just want you to stipulate that you were under no duress uh, to make that statement. That, that was no deep fake. That was the honest truth. <laughs> Thank you. KT, great to have you back. Turning to the week that has transpired, particularly everything that happened Wednesday, just wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on the violence, the politics, the resignations, wherever you want to take it. I don't think it serves any purpose for me to say who's at fault and all that stuff. I want to, because everybody's doing that. I'd like to take a step back or even a step up and say, let's look at this from the big picture. What's the real problem in America today? It's not that Biden is going to be president, although I think he's going to have disastrous foreign and economic policies. It's not Donald Trump, even though I think he behaved abominably since the election. It's not even China, which plans to supplant us as the world's dominant power and then rewrite the rules of order at our expense. I think the greatest problem facing us is us. It's that half the country hates the other half of the country. You know, half the country thinks Donald Trump stole the election in 2016. The other half thinks that, that Biden stole it in 2020. We cannot go on like this because democracy is built on a shared foundation of faith in our institutions, in our officials, in our equal application of the law. And we don't have that right now. We're doubting the elections. We're doubting election results on both sides. So I think, look, everybody's saying we've got to come together, we have to heal. But for most people who say that, what they really mean is, you other guys, you have to come around to my way of thinking and, yeah. by the way, apologize, too. I think we need to take another step and say there are only two people in the country right now who can fix this. 
if they don't fix it, woe on them and woe on us. One person is Donald Trump. He needs to go to his supporters and say, the election is over, and the thing that we won was our principles and our policies succeeded beyond all belief in the four, in four years' time. And the country has just voted at the state level, at the local level, at the federal level, and Congress to put Trump policies and Trump people in office. So we have a success that can live on but stand down for now. And then, he, and then, then Joe Biden has to go to his people and say, I can't govern with half the country hating me. So you, my far radical wing, you guys got to stand down. This is not revenge time. This is not we're going to show those guys time. This is time where everybody has to give something and not expect the other side to come to their way of thinking. This is out of the comfort zone of both of these guys. I know them both. I know President Trump really well, and I know Biden passingly well for the last 45 years. It's out of their comfort zones. Trump wants to fight. He's a fighter. I say to Donald Trump, my friend, take off your gloves. Joe Biden, he's an amiable go-along-get-along Joe. He doesn't like to fight with people. I'm saying to Joe, you put on your gloves. This is outside of both of your comfort zones, but you have to do it for the nation. But you also have to do it for yourselves, because Donald Trump, if you don't fix this, and if you don't let your legacy be that the movement that you started lives on and thrives, then you will go down in history in a, in a very bad way and not a way you want to go down in history. Uh, James Freeman, writing in the Wall Street Journal, suggested, to your point, frankly, that uh, Trump and Biden should have a public meeting before President Trump leaves office as sort of, I think, advancing exactly the position that you're articulating. Would that be a way to do it rather than even articulate the viewpoints you expressed in silos, one to their supporters and another to their supporters? What about a joint between the two? I think that's a, a joint handshake and a joint meeting. That's a great first step, but that's not going to be enough because then everybody goes back to their silo. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be President Trump continuing to be on the national stage, continuing to talk about his policies. Stop looking in the rearview mirror about, I was robbed, I was robbed. Because, you know, look, at anybody knows. If you look, spend all your time looking in the rearview mirror, you never look forward. And Donald Trump has done an enormous great thing for this nation. He will be the most important political figure of the, tw uh, certainly conservative Republican figure of the 21st century, if he seizes it. And if Biden doesn't tell his people to back off and stop with this defunding the police and we're going to punish everybody and we got our list of Trump supporters we're going to go after and we're going to pursue in the courts for parking ticket violations. I mean, if he doesn't do that, he won't be able to govern. And so really, he'll be finished before he even takes the oath of office. I want to go back to a couple of things you mentioned on the international stage. Um, let's start with Middle East peace. And it's probably a larger question about the stability of the world in under a, a President Biden. Is that going to be built upon or is it going to recede and starting with all of these uh, essentially detente agreements between Israel and former Israel antagonists? I think that the Abraham Accords, those are the deals between Israel and the Arab countries. Now, it's important to remember that we think of the Middle East and all the guys who are Muslims as the same. No, there are two big schisms. One is Iran, and they're not Arabs. They're Persians, and they're very proud of the difference. They think they're far superior to the Arabs. It's, they're Persians and they're Shiite. The Arabs, the Gulf Arabs, that's Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, all those guys, they're Arabs. And they're a different version of Islam. 
and the Arab versus Persian is really more important than the different version of Islam. So the peace has been made between Israel and those Arabs. They realize that their common enemy is Iran. And I think that even if the Biden administration tries to screw it up and go and give Iran goodies and bailouts and nuclear weapons, the, the Abraham Accords, in fact, will be continue and probably even be strengthened by the Biden administration. Not willingly, but because they'll find common cause against Iran. I think the Biden administration will probably enrich Iran. We'll go back to some kind of wackadoodle nuclear deal, which never prohibited or stopped Iran's nuclear program. It only put it on pause. And then Iran will get nuclear weapons within a couple of years and probably ignites a nuclear arms race. So in the end of the day, it's probably a more destabilized world. But we're not in the middle of it. And, and with respect to China, are, uh, how concerned are you that uh, we will return to the pre-Trump posture of appeasement? Terrified. If you look at what they've said in the last year, they have every intention of, of using this pandemic as their breakout moment that they had always planned to replace the United States by mid-century as the leading technology, leading economic, leading military power, and then they shove us aside and they rule the world. But the pandemic, which they brought on, they are going to use this because they feel within four or five years they're there. And when Biden is elected president, they think, oh, we know what we've got now. We bought this guy. And plus, he's always, Biden has always been soft on China. And all the people he's appointed to his senior positions in, their, in his administration, they're all soft on China. I'm very worried that Biden just goes back. He'll get a couple of deals. It'll sound good. It'll, the PR will be terrific. But China will be, you know, robbing our lunch. Do you think the uh, Chinese communists will ever be held accountable for their role, to whatever extent it was, in spreading COVID-19 around the world? No. I think, but, but here's how they could be held accountable. They'll never admit it. That's not part of their plan. Remember what they do to their own people who dissent. They crush them, and whether it's in Hong Kong or whether it's even Chinese who live overseas. Any country that dares criticize China, they crush them. What they're doing to the Australian economy, they're trying to devastate the Australian economy. So I don't think China's ever held accountable in the way that you're talking about. The way to hold China accountable, and what I think President Trump would have done in a second term, is to go around to the countries who are feeling the boot on their neck from China and saying, it's now or never. We have to get together. We have to – we free market democracies in the world – and we get together, we're by far more economically powerful and, and technologically powerful than China. And we get together, we, as a group, go to China and say, now you play by the rules. And if you don't, we're going to decouple from you and we're going to have our own economic, political, diplomatic, technological, financial system, and then you're on your own. As a former first deputy national security advisor, you must be tickled that after four years, I, I think in some parts it's still in the Democrat Socialist Party, it still continues, uh, four years of Russian collusion allegations. You have um, uh, individuals like Fareed Zakaria believing it is now safe to come out and admit what the substance of the record suggests, that actually President Trump was very tough on Russia, Trump and the Trump administration, very tough on Russia during his presidency. About Donald Trump is he says a lot of stuff, and I don't necessarily listen to what he says. I watch what he does. To your point, Dan, he was very tough on Russia. Why? Because Donald Trump was setting Russia up for a deal, and he knows that the best way to, to negotiate a deal is not to go to them and plead; it's to have leverage that you whack over their heads if they don't agree with you. She is KT McFarland, former first deputy national security advisor, President Trump, author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dan.
Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Facebook is going to save the republic. Michelle Obama has been enlisted to help, too, or she's enlisted herself to help. Facebook is going to save the republic by banning Trump from Facebook and Instagram. Is he a big Instagram guy? I don't know. Until uh, Biden takes office on January 20th. He's back up on Twitter per the posting of his national address video yesterday. Mm -hmm. Josh Hawley also uh, took to Twitter. He uh, had his book deal nixed. With Simon and Schuster, because his position on the election, the fact that he offered an objection during the time of the electoral certification on Wednesday, he uh, tweeted out, this could not be more Orwellian, although Simon and Schuster is not the government. Simon and Schuster is canceling my contract because I was representing my constituents, leading a debate on the Senate floor on voter integrity, which they have now decided to redefine as sedition. They're not the only ones. George Will has also accused Cruz and Holly of sedition. Let me be clear, this is not just a contract dispute, it's a direct assault on the First Amendment. Only approved speech can now be published. This is the left looking to cancel everyone they don't approve of. I will fight this cancel culture with everything I have. We'll see you in court. You have no First Amendment right to a book contract with Simon & Schuster, just point of order. And Josh Holly knows this. He's former attorney general. He knows this. I'm not telling him anything he doesn't know. So there's a little bit of posturing going on here. But his point about the left looking to cancel everyone they don't approve of seems closer to the mark. Abigail Schreier, who has had some experience with being canceled by the left, and uh, Joe Rogan felt the ire of uh, unacceptable viewpoints when he had Abigail Schreier on his podcast. She had tweeted in response because, because she wrote a book about uh, transgender politics. You're not entitled to your book contract, can quick, quickly become United doesn't have to let you on its planes, Marriott doesn't have to let you stay at its hotels, or Visa doesn't have to let you use its cards, and maybe that's the point. Now, uh, United, Marriott, public places of accommodation, a little bit different than Simon & Schuster, but she's suggesting there's a progression here, and I don't think she's necessarily off the mark, by the way, in terms of where it's okay to return after a transgression where you won't be canceled is if the transgression is from a politically acceptable viewpoint. And so I'm happy to report that Steve Scully, confirmed liar, has returning to C-SPAN. Remember, in October, in advance of being tapped to moderate the presidential debate, that didn't happen, of course, but he was scheduled to do so. He had this exchange about uh, Trump with Scaramucci on Twitter, and then he lied and said his Twitter account was hacked. He later admitted the lie and was put on leave by C-SPAN. He has been reinstated, C-SPAN saying, while it was appropriate in October for Steve to be immediately relieved of his duties leading our 2020 election coverage, we reiterate our belief that now, having completed a three-month administrative leave, he can continue to contribute to C-SPAN's mission. Well, that's interesting. It's not just about uh, the 2020 election. It's about Steve Scully's credibility as a journalist, one would think. But again, because the transgression came from a particular direction, reconciliation is possible. Meanwhile, a a position that Josh Hawley staked out or a book that Abigail Schreier wrote, that is unacceptable and they need to be delisted, as does President Trump. And Michelle Obama saying he should be banned from social media platforms forever and ever. Amen. And a woman. But for more on the tech piece of it, we're pleased to be joined by Stephen Levy. He is editor-at-large at at Wired Magazine. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently, Facebook, The Inside Story. He also had an interesting recent column about a 25-year-old bet 
about the end and whether tech would facilitate the end of uh, the American experiment that came due last year. Stephen Levy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Just, just starting with, with Facebook, since you wrote a book about it, it's been sort of the reporting that uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and per the criticism he's received from the left, that Mark Zuckerberg is trying to walk sort of the open forum line a little bit more carefully than perhaps some of his uh, tech colleagues. Is, is that is that a fair characterization of Mark Zuckerberg, or are they all sort of of the same mindset when it comes to the, their forums being free forums or their effort to be transparent? And they're all sort of just in the business of trying to be as open and transparent as they need to be to avoid regulations they don't want to see imposed. Right. The answer is probably yes. They're trying to do three things. One is to be a hugely successful and profitable company, which they've done. And Mark Zuckerberg is unbelievably rich. And Facebook's worth a lot. And over three million people use its services. But the other thing is that you know uh, he wants people to be able to express themselves. But he also wants the platform to be someplace where it isn't so horrible. People run screaming and his employees can't face their families when they ask him, what's the kind of place are you working for? Then he tries to thread this political needle, as you mentioned, because the conservatives say, how dare you take down our stuff when they take down things because they're lies or destructive or they, they give disinformation about COVID. The other side says, wait a minute, you're not taking down enough because look at all this horrible stuff that's on there. So that's a lot to handle. And I have to say he hasn't done it particularly in a clean way because he sort of wants it all and they're not putting a stake in the ground. I have a newsletter out today in Wired where I'm saying, look, really what you should want to do, and for the long run it'll help you more, is just to make the platform a better place to be in terms of keeping the quality of, of what you do up. That, that's something you could do under the First Amendment, and at least for now, under this law we have that allows companies to moderate what happens on their platform without being responsible for individual pieces of content that people put up. If someone says something libelous, you won't get sued. Facebook won't get sued, but the speaker will. And this is something that I think in the long term would be good, but uh, they don't pursue that. And my book talks about the history, how growth is really so much more important than anything else at Facebook that he looks the other way or didn't hear it when they kept telling him the content on there. Some of it was, was terrible hurting society. It's such a fascinating position to take. At the one hand, the Facebook user is the product. On the other hand, we need to sort of manage our billion users. It's almost a sort of social conditioning uh, that is uh, going on. I don't know. I find it terribly problematic all the way around. It's actually, it seems to me, quite simple. It turns out that uh, humanity is quite, uh, we're quite a messy bunch, we human beings, and there's uh, a lot of ugliness and there's a lot of beauty too. And you're going to get it all when you, when a billion people or how many ever it is start interacting. And so why not, and I'd love to hear the, all the tech oligarchs talk about this, answer this question. W what is wrong with the Lewis Brandeis formulation that the cure to speech you don't like is more speech? Well, it's interesting because the people at Facebook describe themselves as Brandeis First Amendment people. They, they well, that's, a, that's an inaccurate description. I can describe myself however yeah, well, I want, yeah, and then there's my conduct. Way, yeah, that's the way they like to think of themselves. And I think in Facebook, that hasn't proven to work out. And I actually don't think it would prove to work out. When you say the antidote to speech 
it circulates very widely to say, for instance, that a certain treatment for COVID, um, that this will serve, this will solve COVID. And, you know, that percolates very widely throughout Facebook. I think it is Facebook's responsibility not to have somewhere else on the platform people saying, oh, actually, that doesn't work. It'll kill you, that treatment. So I think it's something different. There are certain things like hardcore porn. They say, we don't want them on our site. and They do a good job, generally, of keeping it off. And they have the technical means to do it. It costs money um, you know, to sort of draw a line of, of what things they can't have on the platform that are destructive. If you look at society as a whole, I think you could adopt that Brandeis stance, you know, and we have. I mean, we have a First Amendment that allows hardcore porn, but you don't have to put it on your radio show. Steve, let's hold it there, and when we come back, I want to pick up on the comparison you made of Facebook to radio. More with Wired editor Steve Levy right after this. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, talking about big tech and censorship with Wired editor Stephen Levy. And before the break, Stephen, you made the comparison of Facebook to the radio, but I suppose from an operational ethos, both Facebook and radio could simply follow the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on free speech. We also have FCC licensing requirements on our show that uh, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have, but that's sort yeah, of secondary. Yeah, if you were on the Internet only, it wouldn't be there, right? Yeah, I understand, but that, that's sort of secondary. Of course, you can eliminate, co- eliminate content categories, but the idea that you have arbiters of what is factual and what is not rather than the interplay. Somebody calls on, on our show and says that um, XYZ drug is the magic elixir to cure COVID. And we know from our conversations that that's not the case, or we start to ask questions to probe whether the, the quality of this person's argument in the same way that you can do back and forth on postings and so forth. H- how is that not a better format than um, Facebook, uh, faceless Facebook minders with all sorts of worldviews in terms of the content they want to see amplified and the content they want to see minimized coming and Twitter and, and so on and Google algorithms and so on and so forth. How is what I'm suggesting not a better approach than the approach that big tech is taking? Well, except for certain carve outs, that, that basically is, is the approach. The question is, how many carve outs do you have? How many topics would you have where, you know, uh, Facebook feels compelled to step in and do send it out to these fact checkers that they pay. And, you know, there's not many fact checkers, but there's tens of thousands, you know, maybe 15,000 uh, people who sit in before display screens and every 40 seconds say, you know, this violates our policy. That doesn't violate our policy. And there's 47 pages of stuff, which is horrible things that you can't do on right. Facebook. It is a genuine, a genuine problem, but it's a company that has the right to say we can draw the line to what goes on at our platform. You could say there's not different rules for different people, you know, at least in theory, and, and you know, there's just rules. And, yeah, but the application you know, but, is but, arbitrary. But, 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 well, you know, so it's interesting because it gets back to really the, 
the story I just published, there's one guy who felt that technology could solve these problems, right? And one person who said, actually, technology is so horrible, and I'm starting from, you know, when people use the bow and arrow, um, that we've gotten to a place where, you know, society is about to collapse. And, you know, uh, he had written a book about but the Luddites, these people who tried to put a stop to it in, in England um, by burning down the, the looms, you know, the mechanized looms, and um, they got put down. But he thought, you know, actually their ideas were, were pretty good because they bring this thing to a stop. And they made a bet to say in 25 years, would society collapse? Now, this argument we're having now you know, I think it's just an outbreak of, or sort of one different way to talk about that bet because what's different about Facebook is the scale of it. There are billions of people. Um, you could organize something like that with 100,000 people maybe, and, you know, certainly with, with like 1,000 people where you could have that argument and, you know, if someone posits something, um, then there's someone else that posits something else. And everyone like listens to all the arguments and nods and says yes. But when you have something like Facebook um, where people are, you know, circulating um, dangerous misinformation being dangerous that might kill you. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, want to take a step to keep that off, and they, they should keep a step to keep that off. The question is, where is the line? And you know, uh, and that's a difficult question. And you know, sometimes they deal face with deals with it well. Other times they don't deal with it well because, as as you mentioned, you know, it's a, a business model is something which is an entirely different argument which impinges on this one of course because they want to keep people on the network and keep them seeing more ads uh, which are very effective on facebook so you know um it's a tough problem and i think it gets not back not only to facebook but sort of where technology has taken us that we're in these conundrums with imperfect people trying to solve them no, I agree, and I thought that the Social Dilemma documentary on Facebook was pretty good, too, including a bunch of uh, tech expats, as it were. Um, I, I just – unfortunately, we don't have more time, but but, but I, I do want to direct people to uh, your column again, which I'll tweet out. Uh, a 25-year-old bet comes due, has tech destroyed society? Because that's a conversation we're really having. It's not that Facebook doesn't have the, the right to, to manage their platform. It's what's the cultural impact. And if it if this is the good, a good model that should be replicated, then why don't we have – some institution regulating all of our verbal exchanges with one another uh, and so on and so forth. I, I, the, the, it's the cultural impact. It's the societal impact, which is sort of what that bet was all about, which is why I found it so interesting. Stephen Levy, editor at Wired, author of numerous books, including about Facebook, Facebook, The Inside Story. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great discussion. Have a great day. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're turning to uh, some reflection on the 2020 election. A really good write-up by uh, John Solomon over at his website, justthedews.com. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, what Democrats did and some time talking about what Republicans didn't do. 
but perhaps not enough and specifically. And so that's what John Solomon set out to do, you know, as the recriminations ensue and uh, the finger pointing continues, really. He uh, conducted more than three dozen uh, interviews with more than three dozen frontline players, he describes. And uh, he suggests, because they suggest in his reporting of uh, these interviews, the outcome on November 3rd was cemented long before Labor Day of 2020. And frankly, uh, Trump's performance, and by extension, the performance of Trump voters across America, was uh, perhaps rather heroic considering. He uh, writes, The democratic machinery of former Obama protégés like David Plouffe, John Podesta, David Axelrod, Stacey Abrams, who worried far less about the tactics of ads, travel, Joe Biden barely did travel, and fundraising, and far more about the strategy of how to control the narrative and the rules that would shape the outcome. All about narrative and the rules of the game, while Republicans are more focused on tactics, strategy versus tactics, sort of the you can't beat a plan with no plan. Solomon points out they even told the Republicans and the public what they plan to do. Just read Plouffe's book, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. (laughs) It's true. David Plouffe, Obama campaign manager, did write that book. They predicted days before how the vote count would roll out on election night. And for several days, Trump would lead early and Biden would surpass late. Yes, this was um, the uh, red facade that's not exactly how it played out, but I guess it didn't need to play out that way when you stop the vote in the wee hours on the day after the election. But regardless, the sort of principle stands. So why? Talked about this a bit with Charles Lipson earlier in the program. They usurped the powers of GOP-controlled state legislatures in the five battleground states and re- rewrote the rules of how the votes would be cast and counted using the pandemic as an excuse. Mail ballots could be sent to everyone, even if they didn't ask for one. Wide swaths of Americans could vote by mail. Photo ID requirements could be suspended for those who felt homebound by COVID's wrath. Please see Wisconsin. Mobile ballot boxes could be deployed. Please see Georgia. Spoiled ballots that legally were supposed to be discarded could be cured by election clerks. Please see Pennsylvania. Legally required voter roll purges could be skipped. Please see Nevada. And a single billionaire could donate $350 million directly to the election clerks, judges, and vote counters in the states. Zucker boxes, if you will, requiring them in some cases to register voters, create more poll locations in Democrat strongholds. And the Republicans who control the legislatures in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and thus the constitutional right to set the rules hardly put up a fight. They urge their voters not to take advantage of the loosened rules instead in both the old fashioned way. In the words of uh, Georgia Democrat legislator turned Republican, I believe, didn't I read that? Vernon Jones. Republicans unilaterally disarmed. I don't think that case can be overstated. You have control of these state legislatures. You see what is happening. You have some sense of the implications. You have the left telegraphing in written form what they intend to do, and that specifically the urban center in your state is where they are going to stake their claim for Joe Biden, Joe Biden's victory. And so what happens Joe Biden underperforms, remarkably underperforms Obama and Hillary Clinton in most of urban America, except Atlanta, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit, Phoenix, where they focused. Solomon writes, Democrats understood that in a pandemic and in America with millions of new millennial, urban and minority voters, the easier you make casting a ballot, the more likely a low propensity voter is to vote. Send it to them, help them register, make easy drop off locations or the mailbox, the final destination, and voters will vote a lot more willingly. In addition to that, have the ballot harvest, I I would argue, I would add, have the ballot harvesting infrastructure in place to make it even easier. They don't even have to do that. 
you'll have designees do all of the distributing and collecting and dropping off. And um, this is why uh, Solomon said, to be fair, Donald Trump mustered by a mile the largest national vote ever assembled by a Republican. McCarthy had a great slate of candidates, picked up seats. McConnell raised a ton of money. Mc, uh, Rona McDaniel at RNC put together one of the most impressive get-out-the-votes ef- efforts ever assembled, particularly for Republicans. But all of that could not overcome the advantage of a rewired electoral system in the five battlegrounds. And that's uh, something that uh, Tom Price, former congressman and Trump cabinet secretary, said. Democrats leapfrogged process, strategy, technology, and tactics. And that is to the credit of the folks on the Democrat side. They have perfect perfected harvesting. And I think the numbers will show in the runoff races, they did the same in November that Republicans who lost by close margins won the vote on election day, won an early voting in person, but lost heavily in the absentee ballots. And this wasn't uh, stood up overnight. Again, per these interviews from the individuals he spoke to, Solomon reports, liberals spent two decades building an alliance with the mainstream media, the social giants, and the search giants and the permanent government bureaucracy until they could control the narrative even when it wasn't true. We don't have to go through all the things they said weren't true. You get the point. But the infrastructure they built, the rules of the game, and the narrative. Finally, the liberal oligarchs club, Soros, Zuckerberg, Bloomberg, spent more than ever to win, but they also transformed the way political donations were spent by imposing corporate governance, specific returns on investment. Every recipient had to deliver very specific outcomes to keep getting money, governed by lengthy contract-like documents, and the outcomes and deliverables were mapped to the two larger goals of controlling the narrative and the rules of the election. So again, Democrats were in the business of system change, and Republicans were trying to operate under the old rules after the rules had changed. Really interesting piece, but that different strategic approach. We're going to rewire the system. I think that's a great way to phrase it. And they use the infrastructure they had been built up over decades with a little bit more accountability. I'm not so sure about like the, you know, the metrics piece in terms of the donor class. There's a lot of metrics pieces I know from the donor class with respect to Republicans too. The bigger, rewiring the system, using infrastructure to dominate the flow of information, to dominate the so-called narrative. The election ostensibly was over pre-Labor Day. Now, perhaps there's, I mean, I think there's a lot of things Trump could have done differently from his handling of COVID-19 in those task force press conferences uh, going forward to personnel choices and so forth. But I, I don't think you can overstate the importance of the strategic decisions that the Democrats made and the failure, what they did and what Republicans didn't do, the particularly the failure of state legislatures. Blaming Mike Pence on January 6th, that is so past post, what Republican-controlled state legislatures didn't do. And this is why, as we talked about with Lipson, maybe the path to beginning to restore some confidence is to seeing some changes affected by Republican-controlled state legislatures, particularly in states where there are Republican governors, too, oh, by the way, like Arizona and Georgia. That in the short term. We'll see. Show.com. Welcome back to the show and to uh, close out the week. This question of what do we do? What am I supposed to do? What can we do? What should we do going forward? Got this on uh, the uh, morning show in Chicago that I co-host. And so I just 
thinking about it a little bit more and building on the conversation we had before the break about what state Republican-controlled state legislatures, and particularly those in states where you have Republican governors too, didn't do with allowing Democrats to rewire their elections, what they can do, should do on a go-forward basis to begin to restore some confidence. That You know, this all comes down to trust. We've been having this conversation for a long time, but particularly so in the last week about the, the loss of faith, governing institutions and so forth. So it's a trust issue. So what should we do? How can I have faith? I think um, maybe the way to think about this is rather than looking at the federal and working your way back to your household, start in your household and work your way up. You know, it's, it's so distant. And so it seems so impossible to impact. So, you know, start where you already have the trust relationships and be impactful there. This is what I want to say. Well, you know, what can I do in advance of an election? You can be the essentially ward healer for your within your uh, circle of influence that uh, nobody on the radio or TV or politicians in particular offices have. They're your trust relationships. So if you are just sort of an opinion leader, an information provider within those circles of influence, if everybody did that, who's engaged in following the news and thinking about things like how free society should be ordered, what kind of policies are consistent with the founding principles of this great nation and the like, boy, that can have a an exponential effect pretty quickly. And so I think that's something to think about. Rather than trying to drain the swamp from wherever you live, particularly if you're not a member of Congress, and particularly in the next two years at least, where you've got Democrat socialist control of the legislative and executive branches, how about just locally? Think about the impact you could have if you were influential with respect to schools, your local school board, the decisions they're making about uh, the education of children in the time of COVID, civic organizations that serve your community that you're a part of, already a part of. You know, pick the civic organizations, the religious organizations, the governmental bodies that most interest you and uh, engage to the extent possible, given you know all of the other demands on your time and energies. And then just within your circles of influence, number one, you know, try to grow them. But number two, just effectively, you know, manage or constructively engage within those circles of influence where trust is assumed. And then you can sort of get past that first hurdle and be persuasive based on what you're able to provide to people's understanding of what's happening in the world around them. I just think it's so much more manageable and probably will be such a much greater return on your time and energies and, and perhaps inspire more confidence if you're able to generate such a return on your time and energies. Some uh, fodder for thought, that's all. Appreciate uh, you joining me all week. Be uh, informed so you can be courageous, so we can be free. Keep the fight and uh, be back on Monday when we return. This is the Dan Proft Show.